Welcome to our uh, Glendale Bible study. We are continuing our study in the book of Revelation and particularly in chapter 14. And I actually want to try to do two things. I want to conclude chapter 14 and then go over the first four verses of chapter 15. So before we do that, uh, let me read chapter 14 and verses 14 through, well, no, before I, I read those verses, I want to give an overview of the first part of the chapter where, or the, the middle section where we dealt with the message of the three angels. And few things that we want to note, and this, this will kind of help us segue into uh, the final section of, of uh, chapter 14. So three points of, of um, continuity. The first thing is um, the time span when all of the things that are portrayed in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls leading up to the final judgment, what we saw in the message, <clears throat> the message uh, especially the first from the first angel, is that this time span is an opportunity for those who dwell in the earth, in other words, unbelievers, to be brought into uh, brought to repentance and therefore into the kingdom of God. So we emphasize with the first angel that the first angel brings the eternal gospel and it's by the proclamation of that gospel and believing it that those who dwell on the earth do not have to bear the judgment of the beast. The second point of continuity is that their opportunity to repent is connected to the church remaining faithful to their message and their evangelistic mission in spite of all of the things that are portrayed in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. So the church, so when we talk about repentance, and the eternal gospel that is announced by this first angel, that eternal gospel will be delivered by the church uh, corporately and then through our interactions with those who are in the world. So we, even though there's always going to be conflict, and I think part of the challenge here, and we've seen this throughout all of the cycles of visions, and especially, and, and I've said this uh, before, this is why it's so important to, to before we launch into all of the, the things that are portrayed in Revelation, to really focus on the message to the seven churches, those, sep, those seven individual letters in chapters two and three. And this is a reminder that our message is the message of God's saving grace through the person and work of his son. Our mission is to be lights in the world, not transforming the culture, but being light in the world, serving our neighbors, functioning as well as we can, and opening up opportunities to share the gospel. As we are faithful, now, now as we are doing these things, everything that's portrayed with the seven seals, with the seven trumpets, and later what we'll see in the seven bowls, all of these things, these disruptions and disorders, the persecution that will be experienced, the alienation, the disruptions in the natural order, 
is the context in which we continue to deliver the message. I think of the letter to the church of Smyrna, uh, one of two churches that did not receive a rebuke from the Lord. And they were being persecuted or they experienced tribulation and they were impoverished. But yet Jesus' message to them was to remain faithful. And then right after he tells them to remain faithful, he says, and by the way, some of you are still going to be thrown in jail in the future, but remain faithful. So our being faithful, both in the message we proclaim and in the evangelistic mission that we have been given, is the opportunity that we are presenting to unbelievers to be brought into the kingdom. And it's easy to be distracted by sin. It's easy to be distracted by discouragements and everything that takes place that we get, you know, we, we become withdrawn or sometimes we become so immersed in battle that we forget that our primary purpose here is to declare the eternal message. So on the one hand, what we saw in the, um, the message of the three angels is that everything that is taking place, even as they are worshiping the beast, uh, there is an opportunity in the message of the gospel for them to repent. And if they repent, they will be spared the judgment that will be experienced by those who worship the beast. And the flip side of that is that the church is to remain faithful in declaring that message and not becoming distracted or discouraged because of all of the things that take place portrayed in the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets. The third thing is, uh, this has also been reiterated but uh, and it'll we'll see it in, in this this last part of, of um, chapter 14 is that once so the church is called to therefore not only be faithful, but to be patient. And so in the last part, once we we see these things as they are portrayed, because what's seen in anticipating the coming judgment at the end of chapter 14 in preparation for the next cycle of visions, we have moved from worship in the first, the top part of the chapter to evangelism in the middle part of the chapter. And then in the, the final part, it, it, it returns us to a scene of final judgment. And that's what we're gonna be looking at today. So the, in the latter part, um, and as, as, as they are called to repent through the eternal gospel, they are reminded of the judgment that will come on the beast and all who worship the beast. Now, in the final part, we see a mention again of final judgment. It's important to note here that this is the same judgment that's been portrayed elsewhere. And we will see it again in the, the, the preceding chapters. What's not emphasized is the final battle, but what is emphasized is, or the final conflict and the actual day of judgment, but judgment is portrayed. So with that, we want to look at five things, um, five observations, or four actually, concerning uh, ch chapter 14 and verses um, 14 through 20. And then we'll make one point about chapter 15. So let's begin by reading chapter 14, beginning uh, with verse 14. 
Beginning with verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, "Put in your in your um, sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe." So the angel swung the sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes. Uh, the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the, uh, the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's br uh, bridle or bridle for 1600 stadia. And so there are four things that we want to look at here. First off, you notice that the language and the imagery of the end and that's what's being portrayed here, the final judgment. But the language and the imagery used for the, um, the end or the, the final judgment is agricultural in nature. And so you, you see terms like a sickle, which is an, an instrument used to cut things in the field, cut wheat and grain, uh, reaping, harvest, ripe ripening and things of that nature. So the language and the imagery is specifically agricultural. And this corresponds to uh, prophecy in places like um, Daniel, Joel, and other places where it speaks of the coming of the Lord in agricultural terms. But it also connects to some of the parables of Jesus and we'll look particularly at, at, at one of them later. But, but the language of Jesus, who speaks of end times as a final end gathering. And so even the church, uh, the church is called the first fruit. Uh, and, and so the end of the age is often associated, or especially, as I said, in, in certain prophetic passages, and also in the New Testament is portrayed in agricultural terms. So those terms are consistent with other portions of scripture. Here's the second thing. The language also is, is indicative of Daniel in particular with the emphasis on the son of man. And the son of man, R.C. Sproul used to say this all the time, the son of man was the favorite term that Jesus used in regards to himself. It doesn't emphasize his humanity, as some people think, but actually the emphasis is on his messianic function. And what we see, and this is something that's portrayed in Matthew 13, one of the places where Jesus uses the agricultural imagery to speak of the end of the age, what we see here 
is that the Son of Man is the Lord of the harvest. Uh, the Lord of the harvest. Now, the way he's described is he is seated on a cloud and he has a crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. So some have interpreted this as another angelic being, but the very designation of the Son of Man, the way that he's described, it says that, um, then I looked and behold a white cloud, <coughs> white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a Son of Man. So this is a messianic term in reference to Christ coming really uh, in judgment. So he has come to redeem the earth and also to be the instrument of the wrath of God. The third thing that we see is that the very image of a ripened harvest, and it's, we're, in a moment we'll see that it's a twofold harvest, but the very image or the language of a ripened harvest indicates that the events that will occur are according to a particular time, a time that has been set so that the things that take place in the earth are according to an intended purpose and according to a set time. To go back again to the, the actual wording of the text, it says, um, once you see the, the Son of Man seated on a cloud and he has a sharp sickle in his hand, and then in verse 15 it says, and another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the harp for the hour to reap has come. So all of human history is moving towards a particular point, and that point that point in time has been set by God. And so we've made this point throughout uh, all of the other visions that even with the things that are portrayed in the seals, with the trumpets, and then later what we will see with the bowls of wrath, these are things that have been established by God. We call them, uh, many, especially the disorders and the disruptions within the created order, they follow the pattern of curse, plagues, things that take place. And so this is, this is God moving in a particular direction, but it has a terminating point. So there's nothing that's haphazard. It's hard for us to, to conceive of that. And we don't want to just say, well, God knows, but he does know. And not only does he know, but God has set an order. And there is nothing that will take place within the created order with all of the disturbances, with all of the uh, disorders, that is not according to his purpose. And there is nothing that will take place apart from the appointed time. Throughout the course of Jesus' earthly ministry, one of the questions that came up, especially among his disciples, when he would talk about end times or the judgment that was gonna come on, to, uh, on Jerusalem is when will these things occur? And Jesus himself says, no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man shall return, because that has been set by God the Father himself. So this, this idea of harvest 
is to say that the time is fully come. In Galatians, in reference to the birth of Christ, one of the statements that Paul uses, and I really, I, I resonate with this. He says, in the fullness of time. In other words, at the appointed time, in the fullness of time, God sent or Christ came forth to be born of a woman. And in, in unpacking that idea, the fullness of time and the birth of Christ, because the prophets, among other things, because the prophets or, or God himself said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And the gospel writers indicate that uh, or use that passage in reference to Jesus when he, was, he had to be taken because of Herod's edict to kill all of the boys born of a particular age. And it says um, that, that David took his, or, or Joseph took his family to Egypt and they stayed there for a while until it was safe to come back. And it says, so the scriptures could be fulfilled, that out of Egypt I have called my son. So I've argued in unpacking uh, Paul's statement in Galatians that the fullness of time meant that Jesus was to be born at a time when there would be a reason for him to first go to Bethlehem because he was, uh, Joseph actually lived in Nazareth. So what would cause them to go to Bethlehem? Because that was the prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem. Well, there was a census that was taking place. So the right time was when there would be this census that would cause Joseph to go to the, 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 the city of his fathers, which is Bethlehem. The right time was when there would be a reason for Joseph to take his family to Egypt so the scriptures could be fulfilled. I have called out of Egypt, I have called my son. So you needed someone who was in place to take a census. You needed someone who was in place that would drive Joseph and his family to go into Egypt. So the right time, God God allows human activity to accomplish his purposes even when we are not aware that we are accomplishing his purposes. So the end, the judgment that is coming, is something that is deserved. This judgment that, that is coming, it is something that is deserved, and all of human history is portrayed as a field. All of the activity of human history is portrayed as crops that are growing to the point where the farmer comes in, the Lord of the harvest comes in and says, now is the time, and then he brings everything to its, its appointed end. So that language and, and that imagery of harvest time, when you, you know when it's harvest time because God has set a particular pattern in the earth, where you plant at a certain time of the year and then at another time of the year at the designated time uh, when things grow and the harvest and the farmer goes out and checks to make sure that it's ripe, then he, he uh, takes the fruits, off, the fruit and the grain from the trees and from the ground. Which brings us to the fourth thing. This harvest that's portrayed here at the end of chapter 14 consists of two things. Now, we emphasize the grapes because that's what, what comes natural, but it, it consists of two parts. 
The first thing is you see this in verses 15, uh, 15 and 16 actually refers to grain, even though the word grain does not appear. But the language that's used here is indicative of grain or wheat. So let's look at verses um, 15 and 16. And um, it says, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the question is, well, what is that reaping? And what we'll see in a moment, because we're going to reference, um, and we'll look at, at um, Matthew 13, but what's being reaped in that, that first portrayal is actually the gathering of the church. So even though wheat or harvest is not mentioned specifically, the language is indicative of, of wheat or of grain. So the, this is a harvest of grain. And so the first angel is commissioned to gather, in essence, the church. Uh, this is in reference to the church as they are the harvest. In fact, let's look at, um, well, let's look at the second part and then we'll go to Matthew 13. In verses 18 through 20, the reference is to grapes and it's very specific. The grain is to be taken and gathered. And then the second sickle is sent to bring in the clusters of grape, grapes. And those grapes will be thrown into the wine press of God's wrath. Now, I think this whole scenario can be understood in light of what Jesus says in Matthew 13. And we'll look at Matthew 13 and specifically uh, we'll pick up in verses, uh, we'll pick up in verse 24. We'll begin in verse 24. He put another parable parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field but while his enemies were sleeping his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away so when the plants came up and bore grain then the weeds appeared also and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him master did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat among, uh, along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the, the order is a little bit different. The reference in, in Revelation 14 is a distinction between wheat and grapes, but the point remains the same. Everything that grows in the earth is not considered wheat. So the first gathering 
is the, the first sickle refers to the salvation of the church, holding in mind what we looked at from the message of uh, the, the first angel in the last cycle of visions with the three angels. That may include those who actually worship the beast. Because if they have taken heed to the gospel message and they have repented, then they are included in the wheat. So the imagery, again, is the first division, the, the, first, part of, um, the first part of the final judgment is the separation of the people of God, those who belong to him, those who are not identified with those who dwell in the earth. The second vision or the second angel and the second sickle is used to take everything else which is identified here as grapes. And you notice that it's portrayed as big clusters of grapes. And they are taken and put, put into a wine press and the whole process of making wine is, is, is used as an imagery of the wrath of God. So the two parts of the harvest of the world and maybe some of you are old enough to remember the Isley Brothers song, When Will There Be a Harvest for the World? And unfortunately, I think they didn't fully understand the imagery that's portrayed here. The harvest of the world is twofold. That God will come at the end of human history and bring to conclusion the salvation of those who belong to him so that they would be spared from the wrath of God. And those who refuse the gospel, those who are enemies of God, will receive the full weight of divine judgment, and all of it will come about at the appointed time. So there is nothing that we can look at in the weather patterns to tell us when that time comes. God has set a time to bring judgment to the earth. And one of the things that we've tried to make clear throughout our studies here in the book of Revelation is that the terminating point of human history consists in two things, the judgment of the wicked and the glorification and salvation of the righteous. But the salvation of the righteous or the, the believers, it also includes a purging of the earth for the good and the enjoyment of the redeemed. Now, let's move then to chapter 15. And this, as we've seen with the other cycles of visions, is in preparation for the next cycle. So before you have, uh, and, it's, and it's interesting because prior to the, the, the vision of the seven seals, there's a scene of worship. Prior to the vision of the seven bowl or the seven trumpets is a vision of worship, a scene of worship. So likewise, in chapter 15, as it prepares to go into the final cycle of visions concerning the plagues that will take place in the earth, we have a scene of worship. So let's read verses one through four. Revelation chapter 15, verses one through four. Then I saw another sign in heaven great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for, uh, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Let me pause there for a moment. This does not mean that 
The seven seals are seven separate events. The seven trumpets are seven more events. So therefore you have 14. And now the bowls of judgment or the bowl vision represents seven more things. This is a reiteration of some of the same events that are covered in the cycle of seal visions and the cycle of trumpet visions. But it says uh, this is the, so this is a final portrayal and then we will actually get into the details of those things that, that constitute the end of the age. In verse two, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God, of uh, harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, once again, what's seen is this final scene of victory and worship. But notice the ones who are to worship him. Well, before we even look at, at those who are the, to worship him, there is an intentional reference to Moses. They sing the song of Moses, and the point of reference is more than likely when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and the song of Moses in the book of Exodus, they sing this wonderful song of redemption of how God has delivered them from the hands of their enemy. So those who sing are those who have been victorious over the beast because of their faith in Christ. And what they sing is honor and glory both to the Father and to the Lamb. And they acknowledge that God is the one who has delivered them. So this is a scene of victory that corresponds to the scene of judgment that we've seen at the end of chapter 14. So at the end of human history, after the judgment of the, the wicked, after the deliverance of, the, of believers, there is this scene of victory and the shout of victory and worship that has already been filtered throughout all of these visions. And I think the point is this. Remember we mentioned that right after uh, the, 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 the letters to the seven churches, which is a, an earthly vision, because in the seven letters, John is addressing the congregations as they are worshiping God in time. You go from chapters two and three from the earth and all of the tra travail and all of the issues that are dealing that you have to deal with in a local church setting, then you move to seeing a door that's opened in heaven. And in that open door, John sees this worship, this wonderful scene of worship with the 24 elders and the four living creatures. You see this, this, this scene of worship. And so that's what you see mostly in chapter four. Towards the end of chapter five, same thing, you get this scene of worship. And then as a preview to the next cycle of vision, so that's the preview to the, the seals,
But then towards the end, at the end of the seven seals, and you get ready to go into the seven trumpets, again, you're transported to heaven. And you see this wonderful scene of worship. And we've seen that already, that God continues to remind his people of the final celebration and this final uh, scene of perpetual worship that comes at the end of human history. So at the end of the harvest is the people of God living in harmony with God, celebrating him and the lamb for their deliverance. And that song of worship that comes at the end of human history is what drives us and what keeps us and what comforts us until the end comes. One of the things that we've seen early on with the church, they are portrayed as being in the wilderness where they are nurtured. And part of what nurtures us during the wilderness is this, this concept of otherworldly worship. Not only are we identified with Christ in his present reign, but worship is a transcendent experience in that it deals with us where we are, but it reminds us of what we are by faith. And so worship, even as we worship and we serve him, and this is why our worship is so important for us, that it strengthens us for the battle that is before us. Notice what it says about those who worship him in uh, verse uh, in verse two. It says, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number and the name standing beside the sea of glass. Our worship sometimes comes at great price, but we worship and it's through the elements of worship and through the object of being, being strengthened by the object of our worship, which is the resurrected Lord. That's what strengthens us as we deal with the beast. And so with the church of Smyrna, we mentioned that they were suffering. And then Jesus never says, okay, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you guys don't go to jail. No, he says, continue to be faithful. And so at the end of history, at the end of redemptive history, when the harvest has come, as we have worshiped in time, we will now worship for all eternity. But it seems as if there's a particular moment of celebration that comes as the result of us being taken as wheat from the field so that we can serve God and worship him. And we know that our worship will be without end, but it doesn't mean that every moment is going to be an act of actual worship. What it means is that when the consummation of human history comes at the designated point in time, that we will be in such harmony and fellowship with God that even in our acts where we're not actively worshiping, there's such a union and harmony with God that our very lives our praise offerings unto God. And so this wonderful scene, and I like the fact that it's connected to Moses because the song of Moses is a good scene for us to understand our present aspect of worship. 
They had already been delivered from Egypt, but they weren't in Canaan yet. And so the people of God, before we head into this final section, this final vision of the things that will take place within the created order, we pause once again as we have with each cycle of visions so that the people of God can offer, can, re, can be reminded of the value of worshiping the true and living God even as we are in the wilderness because the fact of the overthrow of Pharaoh and the fact of our deliverance from Egypt is the guarantee that we will get to Jerusalem. And so it's good before we get into all of the difficulties that are portrayed in the, as, as all of these other events reach the culminating point. And John is going to be even more specific in terms of the things that will take place and make no mistake about it. What he is going to show us in this next set of, of visions are have the very intention of showing us that the final harvest is a manifestation of the wrath of God towards unbelievers as well as the redemption of God for believers. So let me just, I want to read for a moment verse 5 to show you the description of the angels and the message that, that they will have concerning the next cycle of visions. He says uh, in, in verses 5 and 6, it says, uh, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. So we see, there is no mistake about it, what is about to be seen are the plagues that God will continue to allow in the earth and they will, they will reach a higher peak of intensity. But the people of God are safe. And the message of the people of God and the mission of the people of God is to be contextualized by the plagues that are unveiled in this next cycle of visions, that we don't stop worshiping, we don't stop serving, and we are never lost. Because this, this act of worship, and it's interesting that it's before a sea of glass, meaning peace. So the peace that we have with God is what is able to sustain us as he brings human history to its terminating point. And it is the peace that we have with God that strengthens us to serve him in spite of the things that take place in the earth. Next week, we will go further and begin to look at the, the visions of the, the seven bowls of wrath in particular. Uh, we hope we've been as clear as we can, and if you have any questions, you can feel free to let us know. But we pray that God's word has been a comfort to you and will continue to be so. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking you again for your word and the reminder that we who are your people, who have been set apart by your grace in your Son, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, you have redeemed us 
for your everlasting glory. We pray that as we encounter things at this point of our existence and at this moment of human history, that we would not be overwhelmed by the things that we experience. Let us be reminded that we are waiting for the harvest. And even the season in which we are, where we are experiencing sickness and unrest at so many different levels, that there is nothing that takes place within your creation that is outside of your will or beyond your power. Continue to strengthen your people by your grace. Continue to nurture us as we are in this wilderness phase, that we would be faithful in the things that you've called us to, that we would be comforted by your grace and be reminded that we are never alone. You are with us even until the end of the age. Thank you again for your word. We pray your blessings upon this church, this church body. We pray your blessings upon those who are sick and shut in. We thank you for your comforts. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. And we pray most of all, Father, that in this season, you would be glorified in and through your people, even as we rejoice in the sufficiency of your grace for this present moment. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.